Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Such a hot day, isn't it? We shouldn't complain. You know, the sun is actually out, so that's really nice. Well, today we continue with our Eyewitness Accounts My Story series. Now, I want to take you back to when you were young as a young person living at home. Now, maybe you grew up as an only child, but maybe you had brothers and sisters in your house, or just brothers or just sisters. And this is very pertinent talk for those on summer holidays right now, living so harmoniously with their brothers and sisters all these weeks of the summer holidays. So have a think, what was it like for you growing up? Did your brothers and sisters tease you? Was there a bit of rivalry going on? It was like the favorite, the, the oldest child, the responsible one, the middle child, the kind of overlooked one. Was the youngest child the favorite in your household? Is that right? Now, my youngest brother, Philip, he's about five years younger than me. And let's have a picture of Philip on the screen. This is Philip now with his lovely wife, Sarah. Now, when we were young, my twin brother and I, my mum brought us up on Weetabix without sugar because, you know, it was good for us. But no, five years later when Philip comes along, he doesn't like Weetabix. He's allowed to have Frosties. Now, I know my twin brother never got over this because it's like sugary cereal. But no, apparently Philip didn't like Weetabix and it wouldn't be fair. So you can see I don't still bear this grudge all these years later, but Philip, if you're watching, enjoy your Frosties. Now, do you remember the story of Joseph? Now, Joseph was the um, 11th son, because Benjamin came after. He was the 11th son of 10 older brothers, and his father favorited Joseph in a not very subtle way. Do you remember he had a coat of many colors and, and he would have dreams and visions about his future importance and his brothers bowing down to him. Now this caused some tension in the house, so much so that his brothers plotted how to kill him. They wanted to put him in a pit, get rid of him, kill him. And it was only Reuben who saved him out of the pit and he got sold into slavery instead. And so today we're going to be looking at what was it like for Jesus growing up? And we're going to be looking at Jesus with his brothers and sisters. Now we know that Jesus lived in a busy household of at least nine people in Nazareth. Now you imagine, it might be hard enough imagining your brother or sister as it was, but imagine growing up with the sinless Jesus as your older brother. Now don't tell me that you didn't get taken mickey of, they didn't like set him up little tricks or things like that. What was it like for those brothers and sisters. And this morning, we're going to be looking at that as part of our eyewitness accounts. We're going to take a closer look. So once when Jesus was teaching in his hometown, you remember the time he's teaching in a synagogue, and the locals aren't quite sure what he's up to, and they say this. This is in Mark 6. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And here we have the list of Jesus' brothers and sisters. So should we meet the family? Here is the family tree of Jesus. So Joseph married Mary. So we've got Jesus on the side there because obviously God the Father was his father through Mary. And then his brothers, as recorded in Mark and in Matthew, are James, Joseph, also known as Joseph. Now, you'll realize, won't you, from reading the Bible, it was very common for people to have a Hebrew name, but their name recorded in Greek as well. So, for example, Jesus' uncle was Clopas, or also known as Cleopas. So we've got James, Joseph, also known as Joseph, Judas. Often in English translations, he's referred to as Jude. Now, I don't know if that's to distinguish him from Judas, one of the disciples. 
And then, uh, so Judas, who was known as June, Simon, and then we'll look at Salome and Mary in a moment. And then also, Joseph's brother was Clopas, or Cleopas, who also married Mary. Do you remember these? It was Clopas who was on the road to Emmaus after Jesus died on the cross. And there were two of them walking, so it was probably Clopas and Mary, his auntie and uncle. And one of their sons was Simon, also known as Simeon. So from the Bible, this is the genealogy of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. And this morning, we're going to look a little bit at what was that like for them and for Jesus. Now, we can see from the order, when the Bible uh, um, records the order, that James uh, is the oldest, then Joseph, but Judas and Simon, he's recorded a different way around in Matthew and a different way around in Mark. So we can't tell who was quite the youngest. Maybe they were twins, but they're recorded in a different order. Now, all these four boys' names, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, were the most common Jewish boys' names at that point in history. And when we're looking at an eyewitness account, it's important to know that these things are rooted in history by looking at the most popular names in any particular season. And so these were common Jewish boys' names at that period. And so this kind of establishes them as eyewitnesses. Now, what about the sisters? You can see in Mark it says, aren't his sisters here with us? So we know it's more than one. Matthew says, aren't all his sisters with us? But in the Greek, all can mean two. So we know it's definitely two, but it could be more. And then later, historical Christian accounts that are the tradition, that are um, seen as historically accurate, record their names as Mary and Salome. So we don't know for certain, but it looks quite reliable that that was probably their names. So that is, if we skip back one, lovely. So that is Jesus' family. And there he was in a little house in Nazareth, Mary, Joseph, four brothers, well, five altogether, including Jesus and two sisters. That was a busy household, was it not? Okay. So what we're going to do is look at some of these family dynamics and also the fact that they recorded just their names. We know that they were well known in the early church. Now, when we look at these family dynamics today, we kind of see a raw side of Jesus' life. And often we study how Jesus intervened in someone's life and, you know, that leper became clean or that person became healed. And it's a really amazing story. But this goes like behind the scenes. And you know when it says Jesus was tempted in every way like us? Well, he had a busy household too, just like the summer holidays. And so we're going to see kind of a raw side of Jesus' life, the tougher side of things that weren't quite so harmonious. Today we're looking at Jesus and his brothers. Now one little aside is this is that from the 4th century onwards, there's been a little bit of a debate about Jesus' family. And the Eastern Orthodox view, um, which is called the Epiphanian view, because it comes from a scholar called Epiphanus, and uh, they like to think that Mary was a virgin all her life. And so they thought, if that's the case, then these children had to be born to Joseph sometime before he met Mary. But modern scholars think that's unlikely because in the genealogy, that's not mentioned. It's never mentioned that Joseph was already married and already had these children. And so the Helvidian view, and that's the one most modern scholars would take, is that all these children belong to Mary and, Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph 
after Jesus was born. So Jesus was born, and as we know, Mary was a virgin. Jesus was born from God by the Holy Spirit to Mary as a virgin. And then after that, they went ahead and had a family. And because it wasn't really contraception as we know it today, I reckon that family probably came quite swiftly after Jesus. And so those brothers and sisters probably followed on quite quickly. Every year or two, he had all that family. But whichever is true, what we do know, he did have all these brothers and sisters, and they all lived in a busy house together. So what do we know about Jesus growing up? We know as a baby, he was born in Bethlehem. And then do you remember he had to escape because of Herod, and they escaped to Egypt, and it was safe to come back. They went back to Israel, and they lived in Nazareth. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And from that age of about 2 to 12, we know nothing of what happened or the brother and sister escapades they all got up to. And then at the age of 12, we see Jesus in Jerusalem at the Passover, and then nothing again till age 30 when he was baptized by John the Baptist and started his public ministry. So these gaps in Jesus' growing up, his, his uh, younger, like junior, junior primary years, his teenage years, we know nothing of what happened. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at some different incidents and go on a journey, and I want you to have a think when we go through this like exploration, what do you think was happening in the home? How do you think Mary and the brothers and the sisters reacted to the things happening? We're going to look at the family attitude to Jesus. So we're going to look at five occasions together and see what you think. We're going to go on a little bit of a discovery. So as we go through each little example, you have a think. How do you think it was for Jesus? How do you think it was for his brothers? Okay, you ready for that? Good. Well, it's a hot day. (laughs) Here we go. Number one the Passover in Jerusalem. Now we see Jesus at age 12. And in the Jewish tradition, that was considered to be a man at age 12. This was a big family and friends trip. And his parents did it every year. They would all go up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And it was a big, exciting thing in the Jewish tradition. It was a bit like how we feel about Christmas. Everyone looked forward to the Passover. They all traveled, traveled to Jerusalem. It was a big um, event. And then they would all travel home. But of course, we know the familiar story that's recorded in Luke, that Jesus decides to stay behind when they all go home. So let's read it together in Luke 2, 44. Thinking he was in their company, they, that's Mary and Joseph, traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Have you ever done this? Have you ever gone home without your children? Well, this is what Mary and Joseph did. And as you can imagine, it's probably like all the families together, families and friends. And they travel a whole day before anyone notices that Jesus is missing. Then they travel back to Jerusalem. So that's got to be another day. Then in Jerusalem, it says they look for him high and low for three days. You imagine you've lost your 12-year-old in Jerusalem for three days. So you can imagine they're quite desperately searching everywhere for him now. And they can't find him anywhere until they find him in the temple. And there he is sitting there quite calmly and has for the last three days been debating scripture with the wise leaders who were astonished at his wisdom. How would you feel as the parent? This could be up to five days now, a day without, without him, a day back, three days in Jerusalem. Jesus replies to them when they ask, what are you doing? Jesus says this, why were you searching for me? 
He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. For his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Their puzzling son, already at the age of 12, so focused in a different world. What do you think was the family reaction to this? They're puzzled, frustrated, accommodating. Were the brothers and sisters there as well? Were they like, oh, not Jesus again? Or were they younger? Were they at home waiting? Because they're probably aged like 11 and 8 and 9 and 6 and 5. And were they at home waiting all those days for their parents to come back? And the Bible tells us Jesus grew in wisdom and favor with God and man, but was that with his family? And now we jump to age 30, and Jesus starts his public ministry after he's been baptized by John. So number two, the wedding of Cana. Now the family get invited to this wedding. And as we know, it's a famous wedding, and the bride and groom, they run out of wine, which was humiliating in the middle of their wedding to run out of wine. And as we know, Jesus performs an amazing miracle. But in the meantime, it's Mary who comes to him and says, Jesus, will you just sort this out? And Jesus is like, no, my time hasn't come to be doing public miracles. The question is this, how did Mary know he could? Had he already done this at home before, when it was his turn to wash up? Is it his turn to make dinner? Who knows? We know this is his first public miracle, but what had he done all those years at home? How did Mary know? So in John 2, it says, Mary says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. How does she know? That's a good question. And he turns the water into wine. And then it says in John 2, 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. This was the first public witness, and his disciples believed in him. So the disciples see this miracle, and they are convinced, this, this has got to be God. There was all this, you know, they filled up all the water pots, they turned it into wine. This has got to be God. They believe in him, but the brothers don't. Have they seen this before? I don't know, because it says after this, he went down to Capernaum, that's where he lived, with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. It was convincing for the disciples, but what about the brothers? They don't seem impressed. Number three, go to the next one. This is the he's lost it, he's crazy example. He's lost it, he's crazy, we're coming to get him. We're taking him home. He's gone too far this time. Now, early on in his ministry, this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's look at it together. Mark 3, 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So we see here that Jesus, a crowd has gathered again. He's in a house. You can't get in for the amount of people. They can't eat. They're preaching and teaching and talking. And the news gets back to the family. And the family go, this is it. We have to stop him. This has gone too far. I mean, he's just taking this a bit too seriously. He's not even eating. 
And you notice the whole family go. Now Mary knows that she received from God that this was the Savior and had the virgin birth. So do the brothers and sisters go, Mom, you got to come. They won't listen to us. Or was Mary saying, well, I don't know. Come on, James. You better lead the crowd. You're the oldest brother after Jesus. You tell him. The sisters came to watch as well. The whole family go. They think he is crazy. He's a fanatic and he's embarrassing. There's not even time to eat. Jesus, you're taking things too far. Anyone would think you'd come to save the world by yourself. So this is what happens. Jesus is teaching and Mark picks it up here. Mark 3. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. I think they didn't want a scene, did they? They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus replies, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, notice that this is mothers, sisters, brothers. You know, it's men and women in this house listening to Jesus. Now, Jesus' response. Jesus gives this response that is a very polite way of saying, I'm not coming home. Can you see he diverts the question? He doesn't answer them directly. He doesn't even send a message outside. But he looks at the people around him. And he says, you are my brother's my sisters, my mother. And it was a polite way of saying to the family, I'm not coming home and I'm not stopping. And he turns it around. Those who follow me are my family. Now this is great for us. For us, this is great to know that as we follow Jesus, he considers us family. It's great for us, isn't it? Great for all those people, those men and women, old and young, sat around him to realize that following Jesus and following God's way, you become like family to Jesus. That's great for them, but very puzzling for the family. And maybe, yes, very puzzling and frustrating. How would you feel if you'd come all the way and you were stood outside. But this is the thing with Jesus. He wouldn't let anything distract him from the focus of going all the way to the cross, not even his family. He wasn't going to stop for them or for anyone. And later on, it says how Jesus set his face to the cross. His ministry was only three years long. He only had a short period of time. And later in Luke 9, 51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And can you see this same resoluteness now in the house when his family come to take him away? And he's like, no, these are the people of God. Because he set his face to Jerusalem. I like the amplified version. It puts it like this. It says, he steadfastly and determinedly set his face to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. Steadfastly and determinedly. And we see the same Jesus at 12 in the temple and the same Jesus now. But what kind of family fallout was there when he ignores this request to come home and to just calm down? Number four, this one is called No Honor. This is a really interesting passage. Now, in Matthew 13, it records this. 
When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, Mark puts it even more harshly in the New Living, Test, New Living Version. It says this, Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now, the disrespect here is astonishing, isn't it? The disrespect for Jesus, because... He's doing these miracles. They're amazed at his wisdom. They're amazed at the miracles. They're just astonished. But then they rationalize to themselves. Hang on, we know this boy. He's just a local kid. This is Joseph's son. He's the carpenter. Here's his brothers. Here's his sisters. And they dismiss him because of their familiarity. They're too familiar. They have no honor. And they missed it. And as a result, it says Jesus could not do many miracles there because their lack of faith. Because they didn't believe in him. He couldn't even perform the miracles. They missed out. And it makes me think about our familiarity with our friends and family who were right under our nose. Are we ever too familiar that we don't see the gold? We don't see what's there. And through familiarity, we just see the things that annoy us or irritate us or get on our nerves. And can we like look again with fresh eyes and see the things we appreciate, that we love, that we care about? And make a conscious effort to esteem one another, to thank each other, to build up our friends and family instead of looking at the negative side. In Philippians 4, it says this, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, so this is to us in our family life, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And this will change our family life if we concentrate on the things we're good at, we appreciate about each other, we love about each other, we esteem one another, we change the atmosphere in our homes. Think about what do you appreciate in your friends and your family? Can you voice it? Can you voice it today? Can we acknowledge it? And it's a choice, isn't it, that every one of us makes in our world, in our life. We make a choice to build each other up or to see the other side. I want to cheer you on, show you appreciation, and choose respect. And so this one, the honor one, is very revealing about Jesus' family in his hometown. That he wasn't respected, he says, in his hometown, by his relatives, or in his own home. And so it's a quite sad picture of his brothers and sisters just continually misunderstanding him, being frustrated by him, not seeing it, not believing in him. And the last one, number five, 
is the Festival of Shelters, or you might also know of it as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this one, the brother's frustration actually spills over. And the scripture plainly states they don't believe in him. So you've got to think now, Jesus is in his mature ministry where he has thousands of followers, his close disciples, the women disciples, the wider group of disciples, his followers, the crowds, and his very own family are frustrated and don't believe in him. So let's look at this passage together. You decide what you think is happening here. John 7, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. Now, if we just skip to the next one, Fee, you can see there's a map here. Now, can you see there's the area of Galilee at the top with Nazareth? And then at the bottom is the area of Judea with Jerusalem. And so Jesus is trying to stay in the area of Galilee and preach and do miracles and stay out of Judea because they're trying to plot to kill him. Thanks, Fee. If we go back to the previous one. So after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. That's interesting, isn't it? Leave the safe part in Galilee and go to Judea where it's dangerous. It's very interesting advice. Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, can you see the sarcasm here of the brothers? They are fed up. They're like, if you want to be famous, go off and be famous. Why don't you go to Judea? Don't stay here and be famous and do your miracles. Go to Judea where it's dangerous, where they're plotting to kill you. Why don't you go off there? And it makes me feel like, you know, like Joseph with his brothers, where they just had enough. And they just had enough of like uh, Joseph's Messiah complex. And they went and threw him in a pit, hoping for him to be killed. Are the brothers really hoping that? Are they wanting to send him to Judea where it's dangerous? If you want to be famous, go there. But they know it's a dangerous thing. They try and entice Jesus to go with them. It's confusing, isn't it? And it clearly says, because his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, what is really puzzling is this. Let's go to the next bit. Jesus replied, you go on. I'm not coming to this festival because my time has not yet come. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, typical, <laughs> though secretly, staying out of public view. And now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And then eventually he does come out publicly. And I bet when the brothers saw him, they're like, you see, we tell him one thing, he does another. Who knows what he's going to do next? And can you see they're just, they're just confused. Isn't that typical of Jesus? And they're frustrated. So to summarize, we go on to the next bit. To summarize these five examples, what do you think is happening here? Not an easy family relationship. The brothers, they're struggling. They're frustrated. They can't see it. They don't get it. Meanwhile, Mary, who had the visit from the angel, gave birth to Jesus. She's treasuring all these puzzling things in her heart. But I don't think there's so much treasuring going on with the brothers. And the brothers don't believe in him. That's sad, isn't it? Then, 
we see this huge shift after Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead, the brothers change. And when Jesus died and came back to life, he appears to many people, but he goes to find his brother, James. You imagine all this time, You've been frustrated, you've been annoyed, you see your brother crucified, you hear he's come back alive, you're not sure, and then he comes to visit you. That is a bit of a shock, isn't it? Talk about eating humble pie, being proved wrong, here is the risen Jesus. It was true after all. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And that encounter with the risen Jesus changed everything for James. He could no longer deny who his brother was. He was shocked and it completely changed his life. He is totally changed by that encounter with Jesus. And it's also a turning point for all the brothers. All the brothers, once Jesus comes back alive, you can see that they, they finally get it. The penny has dropped. The proof is there. Because in Acts 1, it talks about when Jesus goes back into heaven. So Jesus died on the cross, rose again after three days. And during a period of weeks, he met with people, his disciples. He saw many people. Then he ascended back to heaven. And after the ascension, it's called, in Acts 1, it says this. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill they called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were, and then it gives a list of who was present. Who do you think is going to be there? The disciples, of course, and the others. Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And there they are, finally, included in the list, not annoyed, not stomping home, but there they are, in that upper room, praying with all the others, a complete turnaround. And after this, James goes on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he doesn't just believe and like quietly go home, but he just takes on his faith in Jesus so seriously that he runs the Jerusalem church. Now, if you remember, in this early time of history, um, the, the disciples all become scattered. So Peter and the others are all like running the church. But then... Um, Stephen gets stoned and everyone's dispersed. And you remember, Peter is imprisoned. And so Herod captures Peter. He seizes him. He puts him in prison. Do you remember that occasion? And they're going to execute him. End of Peter. But Peter prays and all the disciples are praying back at Mary's house, who is the mother of Mark. They're praying that God will somehow miraculously get Peter out of prison. Do you remember, an angel comes and takes Peter out of prison and he runs through the streets to Mary's house. Do you remember, he knocks on the door where they're all praying for his release and the servant girl comes to the door and she's so shocked, she runs back in to tell everyone. But Peter gives this message in Acts 12 and Peter says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters 
sisters about this, and then he left for another place. Can you see, James had already begun to take on an important role, but he says, tell James. And then Peter can no longer stay resident in Jerusalem for fear of being captured and killed. And so as the, the apostles began to be dispersed, and others, um, they're dispersed, and they begin to church plant across the nations, James' role becomes more and more important in leading the church. In fact, he became so famous that not only in the Bible, but in documents outside of the Bible, he's just referred to as James. And James was such a common name. There were even two Jameses in the disciples. It's such a common name, but he was so famous that they just referred to him as James because everybody knew the James they were talking about. Like all over the world, if you said David Beckham or Beyonce, people don't go, well, which Beyonce? Uh, which David Beckham? And in the same way, they just used the name James because he was so important. And as this position of importance went on, the churches that were planted and founded, they saw Jerusalem as the mother church. So now James is leading like the mother church of all these churches that are expanding. And here is the brother who didn't believe in the most senior position. There are many mentions of James in the New Testament. Do you remember there's... Um, the Council of Jerusalem, where they all come together, that the gospel is now going to the Gentiles. And they're having a meeting to see, is that okay? Do you remember that in Acts 15? And it says, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. And he chairs the meeting and makes those final decisions. Luke records in Acts a time when, remember Paul, he was Saul, he has this encounter with Jesus, he becomes Paul, and he's talking about the times that he met with James in the Jerusalem church in Acts 21. The next day, Paul, this is Luke recording in Acts, the next day, Paul went with us to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. In Galatians, Paul talks about James as a pillar of the church. Galatians 2, James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so they recognized the grace given to me. And when Paul has this encounter in Damascus, he goes away for three years, but when he comes back in Galatians 1, he writes, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles only James, the Lord's brother. And here he is, James, the Lord's brother. What a turnaround. It is phenomenal. And then he goes on to write the book of James. In the beginning of the book of James, he writes this, James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went from frustrated brother to servant and served Jesus and served the church. Now, sadly, after about 10 years, is still a lot of political unrest and things going on. And James is executed, and he is recorded as being stoned to death. And the high priest, Ananus II, who was the brother-in-law to Caiaphas, he has James executed by stoning. And this is also recorded outside of Scripture by Josephus, the Jewish historian, in 62 AD. And James is the only Christian mentioned in a first century source not written by a Christian. So it's recorded in history. The only Christian in a historical document not written by a Christian. And also there's this other guy called Hegesippus who also agrees that James was executed and suffered death by stoning. 
So just like his older brother Jesus, here we are, James gives his life for his faith and for the church to just expand across the world. It's just amazing. What a change around. So I kind of want to ask, was James and the other brothers the ultimate eyewitness? He grew up with Jesus in the house. He teased him. He didn't believe in him. He mocked him. No doubt they tried to trick him. He was frustrated. He failed to understand Jesus' ministry until later, but then he runs with it as a huge influencer in his day. And they were still dangerous times, and he gave his life for it. And it's interesting, if we go back to the little family tree, after James's death, his cousin Simon, or Simeon, he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he leads it for around 40 years. Then he gets arrested and crucified. And you can see how this family are giving their life for what they understand Jesus has done now. In fact, later times, there's this guy called, um, if I can find it here, uh, later on, there's a guy called Julius Africanus who lived in Emmaus, and he's a third century writer, and he discovered that there was a local term, meaning the master's people, and what that was was relatives of Jesus around Nazareth and another town about 10 miles north, who were all sharing and witnessing about the good news. So whereas the family didn't understand him, now since Jesus rose again, they were impacted. Their lives were changed by Jesus, not just by the fact, but by having his spirit inside of them. And they went on to affect the known world at the time of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? So what about Jude, Joseph, and Simon? Well, we find out that they become famous traveling ministries. And Paul mentions them in a list in 1 Corinthians 9. And in this list, Paul is arguing about how traveling ministries should be supported. And if they want to take their wives along, they can. And he's arguing a point, and he uses their names. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 9.5. If we go back a slide. Don't we have the right, he argues, to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and brothers and Peter? And so can you see here, Paul is making a point, and he's using people that are known to everyone in Corinth. They're so famous, he makes a list of people he knows that everybody knows, the Lord's brothers, Peter, and the other apostles. So from this, we know that the other brothers went on to be traveling ministries for the gospel. That's amazing, isn't it? And what about the sisters? If the tradition is reliable that they were called Mary and Salome. That would show that they were well-known, and they were also known by the early church, so they had a role to play as well. So, amazing times that they had such change. So lastly, I was in Saundersfoot about a month ago, and I was in Saundersfoot, and they had a shellfish pop-up down there on the beach in the harbor. And I like shellfish, so I went and visited it actually a few times during the day. And there in the front, they had a tank of lobster. And they would catch these lobster fresh offshore. And there they were in the tank, with their little claws, you know, taped together. And the lady working there was asking her about the lobster. And she had named them all. And as they got sold, she'd go, oh, bye-bye, you know, Gertie. Oh, bye-bye, Di. You know, and she would just name these. My favorite was one-armed Bob, because he lost a claw and he only had one arm left. 
And uh, I was really fascinated. So I did a little bit of research, and what I discovered was lobsters actually shed their skin. So, but let's, let's talk about someone else in the lobster family, shrimps, because it's a little bit easier. So shrimps, now shrimps, there's such a thing as shrimp molting. Have you ever heard of this? This was news to me. Now, as I'm sure you know, shrimps are invertebrates, and they have an ecoskeleton, which means their skeleton is on the outside and the soft flesh is on the inside. And molting is when a shrimp leaves its tight-fitting ecoskeleton in order to grow a new larger one to live in. Now, I've watched some of these on YouTube. It's very fascinating. And uh, the lobster, that is a real full-on, you know, tugging in and out of its shell. Now, with the shrimp, it's more a little, ooh, and then it pops out of its shell. It's amazing. So they're in this tight little shell, and then they just come out of it because it's too small to hold them in, and they need to grow. Now, in an um, average little shrimp, they will molt their, their shell every three to four weeks. But little ones, you know, the youngsters, they can molt it every one to two weeks. It's amazing, isn't it? And it is quite a process of wriggling and pushing. And when they come out of their shell, they begin to absorb water. And in absorbing the water, they grow bigger and they grow a new shell that fits their new size. Isn't that amazing? And it made me think about this. When I was studying this about James and the brothers, they had a total shedding of the old shell. They were caught in a shell that was too small. They were stuck in it. They had a view of their brother that just restricted them from seeing the truth. And they like burst out of that shell at the resurrection of Jesus. Their beliefs and frustrations and puzzlements all about Jesus were a tight shell holding them back. And then they popped out of it and grew a larger one and a larger one and a larger one, leading the church, being missionaries around the world. And it made me think about us. Sometimes we can be stuck in a shell of old thinking, an attitude, a belief, a frustration, something that happened a long time ago. And we're still trapped in that old shell that is too small for us. And an encounter with Jesus will burst us out of that shell take on the living water to grow a new one more appropriate to our new thinking. So I want to encourage us this morning, shed the old hard shell. Is there a shell that is keeping you tight and small when God wants you to grow and change your thinking into something bigger? For James, it all changed with an encounter with the risen Jesus. And that encounter is here for us. Whether we've encountered him before or never before, we can encounter him again and again and again. And I want us to invite him into our hearts again this morning as we close, that we will burst out of whole hard old shells holding us back to see new things just like the brothers that a whole new life can open up before us. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Let's shed the old shell ready for new thought and embrace the change that Jesus brings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we think about you and your brothers and sisters and what that must have been like, we know that you had a real earthly life just like us with its tensions and strains and misunderstandings. We thank you that one day we'll meet your brothers in heaven. And Lord, I thank you for that change, that when you came back to life, it was for all of us. 
And Lord, I ask that you would just intervene in our lives again. That Jesus, the risen Jesus, you will come to us. Soften our hearts, Lord. Where we're stuck in a hard old shell and we need to burst out of it. Help us, Lord, with our old thinking, old mindsets. Come to us now by your spirit. Lord, we pray that we just take on more of your living water, that we grow. We grow and change. You'll change our lives. Come into our thinking and our relationships and our family and to the world outside. Thank you, Jesus, for your overwhelming love, how you persevered and persevered and persevered with your brothers. And what was it like for them to see the risen Christ? So, Lord, I pray for your blessing upon us today. For all the families coping the summer holidays, for all those in work, bless those on holiday. Thank you for your continued presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.